I invite you to take your Bibles with me, turn to Mark chapter 10. And as you turn there, we're continuing our series on strategic regrouping, the series that we introduced last week. If you weren't with us, we'll kind of do a brief review here to catch you up. A regroup incorporates several key elements in it. A team or a military unit will step back from their current situation, analyze why things maybe aren't working out, what the obstacles are, clarify their mission as they articulate their objectives, and then choose a strategy to move forward. For the last 18 months, we have been in pandemic mode. And I don't know about you, I'm ready to be done with pandemic mode, but it appears that we still have some time to go on it. As our church seeks to move forward this fall, we need to regroup strategically. We need to analyze where we've been, what the lessons are that we need to learn, and then clarify our objectives so that we can advance the gospel. And we've got several key things we're trying to do this fall, church-wide, to advance the gospel, to bring the message of hope to the people around us. Last week, we looked at a story in Mark chapter 9 of, of Jesus casting out a demon out of a young boy. We noted that God may be teaching us some really deep lessons in difficult circumstances, even in dire circumstances, we could say. Perhaps the Lord is using these things to help us rely on him or to draw greater faith in him or to get us to not focus on the problem in front of us, but on the authority and the power of our Savior. Today, we need to refocus our objectives, clarify our priorities, we could say. We need to remember what is truly important and why we're here in the first place. We need to reprioritize what is truly essential. And that word essential has been thrust into our vocabulary, has it not? During the COVID-19 pandemic, we've learned what is essential and what is not. We've learned about essential businesses, right? Maybe your business was declared an essential business. These organizations, these industries could remain open during the pandemic shutdowns. And they included obvious things like grocery stores to get food, medical establishments, hospitals, doctor's offices. But as we found out here in Colorado, essential businesses also included things like marijuana dispensaries, go figure, bike shops. I wasn't totally disappointed about that one. But a little unusual that those things were declared essential and church was not. We also found out about essential workers. Organizations had to determine who is an essential worker. Hopefully that was all of us. We were all essential workers. Like the millennial generation that I'm in part of, we're all winners, right? We're all essential. But uh, some organizations had to determine who was an essential worker without which they could not operate. We also learned about essential items, didn't we? You know what I'm talking about, that item that everybody was panicked about, that were fighting over in parking lots. Yes, unfortunately, toilet paper became an essential item that led to fist fights. Still baffling to me. Uh, but I guess when you are threatened with prolonged shutdown, you need the essentials. We also noticed that things like pasta and hand sanitizer were out of stock. And now we're experiencing the long-term effects of essential item shortages. I don't know if you've heard about the chip shortage, the microchip shortage that's affecting the automotive industry. That's continuing to go on. Well, with all this talk of what is essential, it's good for us to turn that question inward and ask ourselves, what is essential in my life? Whatever you believe is essential is what you will value the most, right? Whatever you believe is essential, I can't do without this, is what you will value the most, 
when the pandemic hit and we were shopping at grocery stores, we knew, you know, I could do without the ice cream, but I probably can't do without soap and toilet paper. Probably a good decision. You may push back on that because ice cream for some of us, myself included, is essential, but that's neither here nor there. Whatever you believe is most essential will be what you value the most. So I have a very simple question today. Is Christ essential to you? Is Christ essential to you? Do you believe that Jesus is most essential in your life? And again, for clarity here, I think all of us would quickly say, well, yes, of course he is. But I want us to get past that quick reactionary answer of yes and really consider this question today. Do you value Jesus above everything else? Colossians 1.18 says that Christ is preeminent. That means he is foremost, he is primary, he is the highest in all the universe. He takes first place in all things. There's nothing in this universe that's greater than him. All people have a responsibility to place him at the center of our lives. We could use an analogy. He is the sun around which our universe must revolve. He is essential. Everything else bows to him. And his call in the gospel accounts and his call today is a call for every person to follow him. Philippians 2 says that at the end of time, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So it's a matter of when we confess that Jesus is Lord, not if. And this call that Jesus gives is a call for total allegiance to him. A call for total allegiance. To follow Jesus means that we place him at the center of our lives and surrender everything to him and allow everything else in life to orbit around him. That might be simple in concept, but I think we're going to see today that that is a little more difficult to do. This is the second major regrouping lesson that we have to learn. Jesus' followers must reorient their lives and values around Jesus. Jesus calls his followers to revolve their lives around him. And as comfortable, affluent people here in the West, it's very easy to get complacent. It's easy to adopt the values of our culture and consider other things more valuable than Christ. Not because we set out to do that, but because we drifted very slowly. And if we aren't careful, we will say that Christ is essential to us, but by our lives and our daily choices, we'll demonstrate that he's not really. Earthly values might push Jesus from his rightful place at the center of our lives. And so we have to beware. We have to make sure that we are responding to this call, this call to his followers that Jesus gives to orient their lives around him because he truly is essential. Whether we recognize him or not, that's who he is. That's what he is. And this call is vividly heard in the story of the rich young ruler here in Mark chapter 10. This story is going to challenge us to reorder our values and place Jesus at the center of our lives. It graphically illustrates the danger of earthly values. And as we walk through this story, we're going to note a number of different things. We're going to work through the story first and then draw three applications about earthly versus heavenly values. Let's look through this story here, starting in verse 17, Mark 10, 17. Now, as he, speaking of Jesus, was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do 
that I may inherit eternal life. So here's the setting for the story. Jesus is continuing his journey, continuing his travels. When a person, an unnamed person, and we never find out his name actually, when a person comes running to him, well, who is this person? From this verse, we just know that there was one, O-N-E, one, an individual. Later on in the text, we find out that it was a man and that he was rich. We find out from Matthew's account and Luke's account that he was young and that he was a ruler. Mark never mentions the fact that he was young or a ruler. So why would Mark only introduce him as one, an individual? And I think it's because he's trying to draw our attention to the content of the conversation and not get distracted with who he was. Because this question that he asks and the answer that Jesus gives is applicable to all of us, not just to rich young rulers. So the man runs to Jesus, showing that he had an urgency and excitement about him. He asks a genuine question. Because I think he was a genuinely moral person sincerely seeking an answer about eternal life. Now there are two ways to interpret this man's interaction with Jesus. I just tip my hand. I think he was a genuine seeker of truth. That he was legitimately trying to ask Jesus what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. Other, several of the commentators I checked, said that we could view him as an arrogant ruler who was wishing to justify himself. I'm going to take the view that he was a genuine, sincere, maybe a little naive, but fundamentally a sincere person. And I'll try to demonstrate that as we move along. How does he address Jesus? What does he say here in verse 17? His opening two words are good teacher, right? Well, the interesting thing about this title is that sometimes the Bible, the gospel accounts talk about people being good. Sometimes we hear of teachers addressed as teachers, but never in Jewish literature do we have someone addressed as good teacher. This is totally unique because good was often described of God. And to say that someone was a good teacher carried a weight of implications that most people weren't willing to venture into. But this man does. Maybe he was implying something. Maybe he was just eager. But the man's question that he asks after this opening address is actually quite perceptive. He wants to know how to get into heaven. Of all the things that Jesus talked about, this is the one that matters the most, right? He often talked about the kingdom of heaven. He often talked about what needed to happen to enter heaven's rest. But there's something implicitly wrong with the question. Do you see it? What's wrong with this question? It's a two-little, two-letter word, do. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. In other words, what action must I take in order for me to gain eternal life? He's made a very common mistake here that betrays an earthly worldview, an earthly set of values. Many people believe that they must do something to gain eternal life. And I'm afraid that many Christians even relate to God after salvation as I have to do something to earn his favor. Folks, if we didn't get saved by our works, we can't keep God's favor by his works. It's all of grace. But this man was speaking out of his context, out of his culture. And this thinking of what must I do to gain eternal life was very common in first century Judaism. So with the stage set, 
we now get Jesus' first response, verse 18. So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. So the first thing Jesus does before he even answers the question is he, he challenges that greeting. And he's not challenging this greeting of good teacher because he isn't the good teacher, but because he is underscoring the massive implication it contained. You see, this is the implication. It it goes like this. If God alone is good and you call me good, then you're putting me on the same level as God. And therefore, you must be prepared to listen to my answer like you would listen to God's law. Well, was this a correct assumption on the man's part? Was Jesus good? Yes, he was good. But was the man ready to submit to the implications of this greeting? No. And we're going to find out why he wasn't ready in a few moments. Because if he was, he would have followed God's word coming from the mouth of Jesus. You see, starting with this opening response, Jesus begins to address the man's true heart problem. And it's a very subtle case that Jesus is building against this man. It's fascinating, actually, because he doesn't answer the questions directly. And then when he does answer a question directly, it seems almost like too obvious, like you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. And that's what's going on in verse 19. He answers the question fairly directly, but as the man will find out, that's not all there is to it. How does Jesus answer the question? Well, verse 19 tells us that he refers back to the Ten Commandments, the most famous piece of legislation in Israel's history. Actually, a very famous piece of legislation in our world today, even. Jesus quotes the fifth through the Ten Commandments. Look at verse 19. You know the commandments, Jesus says. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. The only phrase that's not a quotation of Exodus 20 is that little line, do not defraud. And that is probably an explanation of the 10th command, which is what? Do not covet. Do not covet. Why would Jesus shift from coveting to defrauding? One commentator, I thought, gave a really good explanation. He said that defrauding would be an external result of coveting and was a peculiar temptation, a particular, excuse me, temptation for those in power or those with wealth. So what Jesus is answering, how Jesus is answering here is he's answering with external things that could be measured, correct? You know if someone commits adultery, you know if someone murders, you know if someone steals, you can see when they bear false witness. You can't see when they're coveting, but you can see when they're defrauding. And then you can see when someone is not honoring father or mother. So on the surface, the answer is simple, right? It's just part of the law. It's the Ten Commandments. It's the thing that that Jesus was expected to say. But there's more going on here. Jesus is, is kind of setting up the man with his answer. Remember, this man asked what should he do to gain eternal life. Jesus quoted the commands that expressed love for his neighbor. That's how we summarize the second half of the Ten Commandments love for neighbor. These commands that Jesus gave were easily measurable. But is our relationship with God only a matter of what we do externally? No. God cares about our hearts. 
we think of these commands as simply sins of commission. Don't do these things. But these sins can also be sins of omission as well. That's what Jesus explains in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard it said of old, but I say to you. So what Jesus is doing, I think, is putting his, his omniscient finger on the man's true heart condition. And that is a lack of love for his neighbor because he loves himself too much. And he's going to expose that shortly. Verse 20 contains the young man's response. The young man answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now notice that he simply addresses Jesus as teacher now. He dropped the good from it. And I think it's because he misunderstood what Jesus was saying. Jesus is the good teacher. He is God in the flesh. But the man, maybe in his eagerness or enthusiasm, thought, well, that was a little bit bold. I'm just going to back off to teacher. Jesus was recognized as a good teacher. The man's response, frankly, is as bold as it is surprising. He claims to have kept or observed all of these things from his youth. I mean, I don't think any of us would want to say, yeah, I, I perfectly obeyed the law. I mean, let's just take your driving record, for example. Just because you don't have any tickets doesn't mean you've perfectly obeyed the law, right? I won't ask for a show of hands how many of us sped on the way to church this morning. His response claims to have kept or observed all these things from when he was very young. This word keep is a really interesting word. I have kept. It, it was also used of watchmen who carried out their duties as sentinels as they protected a city by being on guard. What he's implying here is he's claiming to have meticulously observed every commandment and abided by the minutest rule as a pattern of life from his childhood. That's a staggering claim, isn't it? I have kept the law scrupulously from my youth. I have kept it very consistently. I've not erred from it for a day. Well, this is certainly self-righteousness, correct? He's looking to his own performance as a, as a means of boasting about what I have done and my access to God. He's looking inward and believing he possesses flawless character by his own efforts. But there's, again, two ways to take this. You can take it as he's a brash, arrogant guy boasting about his self-righteousness. I don't think it's that, though. You say, why? There's another group in the New Testament that was brazen and proud about their self-righteousness. You're thinking about them. It's the Pharisees, right? How does Jesus respond to the Pharisees? Does he respond, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but does he respond, like verse 21, looking and loving them? How does he respond to the Pharisees? <laughs> Woe to you, blind guides! He's very severe with the Pharisees. So I think that this man, and, and we can disagree on this issue because it's not exceptionally important, but I think this man was genuine. Certainly naive, but genuine. He painstakingly scrutinized the law to follow it to the utmost degree. And his response, to me, reads like a small child that's proud of their performance to their parent. Right? Yesterday we had Zane and Zaner's first upward soccer game. And it was as glorious as you could expect it to be. And they were super jazzed after the game. Great. Are they on the MLS team right now? No. They've got a long way to go. They were proud of their efforts. Was it good enough to get to the professional level? No. This man was proud of his efforts. 
but not in a brazen way. Perhaps, I'm speculating here, there was excitement in his voice as he thought he had actually done enough to gain eternal life. He asked Jesus, what do I do to gain eternal life? He says, obey the law. I have obeyed the law. I'm there. Maybe that's what he was thinking. But we do know, regardless of what he was thinking, that he was deceived in his thinking, right? He was deceived into thinking he was righteous because he associated righteousness with external activities, And that's the heart of legalism, wanting to do just enough to meet the law's demand while neglecting the hard attitude behind it, neglecting to love his neighbor truly. Legalistic thinking focuses on what I must do to get by. And Jesus is about to expose this with a knockout punch. Verse 21 gives Jesus a second response. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. This answer has several components to it, so let's break them down. Mark alone records that Jesus looked and loved the man. It's a really beautiful detail that he includes. And this look here, this word look means to, to gaze intensely at. It's not just a quick glance, but it's a, a piercing gaze. He's scrutinizing the man. And he loved him. Over and over again, we read that our Savior loves sinners. He was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep having no shepherd. He was moved with compassion when he saw their hurts and their illnesses. He was moved with compassion for this man. Jesus' attitude toward the man suggests that he was genuine because if he was arrogant and proud, he probably would have treated him like he did the Pharisees. The love that Jesus had for the man has to frame then his response because that, on service level, the response is pretty straightforward. It's pretty stark. But if you read it through the lens of love, you understand that Jesus cared deeply about this man and told him the one thing that he was missing. He genuinely wanted this man to enter heaven and experience eternal rewards, and he cared enough about him to tell him the hard thing. He told him the hard truth that this man, for all that he had, lacked one thing. He had a single major deficiency that would leave him out of heaven. So what was that one thing? He gives a number of commands, but the heart of the one thing is that he was trusting in his riches, and his riches had his heart. So what Jesus is telling him to do is totally surrender to Christ, to give his life to him, to stop trusting in his wealth, to stop trusting in his deeds for righteousness, but give up all these things to follow Jesus. Look at what Jesus explicitly says. The verbs go and sell are commands. If the man wanted instructions on what to do, what actions to take, here it is, go and sell. Sell all that you have has no limit or scope. He didn't say sell your stuff in this area. Sell your hobby collection. He says sell all that you have, everything. He should then take the money and give to the poor. Give is another command. So go, sell, give, and then follow at the end of the verse is another command. Jesus is making it very clear to him and answering on his terms. The word poor refers to the poorest of the poor, those in abject poverty. Maybe those that are crippled or have chronic health needs. 
The government back then didn't care for them. They were dependent totally on charity and almsgiving. Jesus is telling him to give up all of his vast material wealth, benefit those that don't have any, and follow him. But look at the result of the sacrifice. Look what Jesus promises in return. You will, that's a guarantee, you will have treasure in heaven. Having given up earthly things, the man will gain eternal rewards. So Jesus concludes his answer with a final command. Come, take up your cross, and follow me. This last command really gives the reason for all the previous ones. If the man is going to follow Jesus, he has to give up all that he has. He has to let go, let go of what he is trusting in. If the man will make Jesus Lord over his life, if he will give up everything else of value, he will gain eternal life. If he orients his life around Jesus, he gains heaven. Now notice, before we move on, what Jesus does in this answer. The man asked a question about earning salvation, and Jesus' answer was to do what? To give up everything and follow me. Jesus has explicitly tied entrance into heaven with following him. He is speaking to the man and saying, there is no other way into heaven. I am the door. If you wish to gain eternal life, you must come through me. The Savior shows us the way, and it's through him. Now, this is the point of the story where the tension is highest. And I know we've read it once already. I know you know what it says. But imagine being a disciple. Put yourself in that scenario. And you're looking back and forth. Here's a guy with unfathomable amounts of wealth. And Jesus is telling him, give it all up and follow me. And you're at the edge of your seat going, what's he going to do? And verse 22 is one of the saddest verses in the Gospel of Mark. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Two times the text notes that he was sad. The first phrase, he was sad at this word, basically means his face fell and clouded over. He was utterly disappointed. He went away sorrowful, grieving, in severe emotional distress. Why? Because he had great possessions. The final phrase explains everything. And now we see what Jesus was driving at, what he was hinting at all along. Jesus knew that the man's heart was the problem, not his performance and not his possessions. The one thing this man lacked was the most important thing of all, but he wouldn't give up control over the things that he cared about to follow Christ. He wouldn't give up the things he trusted in to trust in Jesus. And so we now see the rest of the story. Though the man claimed to have meticulously kept the law, he actually violated and broke several commands. He broke the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. He gave his allegiance to his things rather than to God, which made him an idolater. Second, he violated the first great commandment, to love God with all your heart, Deuteronomy 6. It's repeated in Matthew 22. He loved his possessions more than God. Third, he broke the second great command to love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19, 18. He loved himself more than others because he wasn't willing to give up his stuff to give to those who are in abject poverty. Now, before we move on, a quick clarification. Lest we get the wrong idea, is Jesus commanding all of us to give up everything we have to earn salvation? Is salvation earned by giving away our things? 
And the Bible answers very clearly, no, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, it's not of works that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. So what is Jesus doing here with this answer? Was he contradicting himself? No. What Jesus was doing was exposing the idol of riches in the man's heart because these possessions prevented him from turning to Jesus. And maybe Jesus is putting his finger on something in your heart right now, something that's preventing you from turning to him. This man trusted in his riches and his works for righteousness. The point is that we trust in Christ alone for salvation and must renounce all other idols our sinful hearts cling to. One commentator wisely noted, quote, that Jesus did not command all of his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue the command. In other words, if you're relieved that Jesus isn't asking you to give up all your things to gain eternal life, your things are probably an idol. Is Jesus more valuable than your things to you? Jesus here invites the man to give up his things for a treasure more valuable than earthly stuff. He does the same for us too, doesn't he? He invites us in his grace to give up our earthly trinkets and receive eternal treasure. The things that won't last anyway, he says, give up and gain the things that are eternal. Think about the gravity of this situation for a moment. Jesus identifies exactly what the man must do to gain eternal life. That's the question the man asked. This is what I must do. I must renounce my trust and possessions and follow Christ alone. But the man chooses to walk away. Jesus says, here's salvation. If they're at the negotiating table, the man says, what do I have to do? Jesus puts it on the table and the man says, I'm good. I don't want that deal. And he walks away from eternal life. Are you walking away from eternal life? Maybe you're here today, never visited here before. Maybe you've come every week for years and you've never received eternal life. We would say that that man was foolish and he was. Are you living the same way? Are you acting the same way? Are you as foolish as he? To say, here's how to gain eternal life. I just got to give up a few of the things that I have that are holding my heart back and I will gain Christ and live forever. And you say, no, I don't want that. For us as Christians, there's a whole bunch of application here too. Because we claim to follow Christ, and we're going to get to this in a moment. But if we claim to follow Christ and Jesus says, give up that thing that you have that you value and and value me more, we're foolish not to do it. We've already trusted in him for eternity. We're already on our way to heaven. So why not accumulate more eternal treasures? Why cling so tightly to the stuff of this life? As you can see, Jesus calls his followers to orient their entire lives around him. He is essential. He is to be valued most. Not only does this story teach us about how to enter heaven, we flesh that out a little bit here. It also teaches us three important lessons about our values. I've hinted at this so far. Let's take a closer look at the teaching here about our values. And as we do, I encourage you to reflect on your own values. What is important to me? What is essential to me? Who or what does your life revolve around? Think about that as we walk through these points. First of all, we find from this man's example 
that earthly values will enslave you. Earthly values will enslave you. And like Jesus looked at the man and loved him, I say this out of love because I would hate for any of us to miss out on eternal reward because we love the things of this life too much. Earthly values will enslave you. The man proves that the enslavement can happen in two ways at least. First of all, earthly values will deceive you. Because when we value earthly things above heavenly things, we'll end up like this man. He was totally incapable of prioritizing what was really important. Earthly things have a blinding effect on us, rendering us unfit and unable to discern what's truly valuable. We will be deceived by earthly things when we cling to them, and then we'll choose earthly pursuits over heavenly ones. This man, as we mentioned a moment ago, walked away from eternal riches because he couldn't bear the thought of living life without his earthly ones. How short-sighted, how deceived he was. And so I wonder if you are deceived by earthly things, believing that a retirement account, a vacation, a position to be more important than centering your life around Jesus. Jesus calls you to give up those things you've deemed more essential to him. And when you make him the center of your life, you will find great joy and peace that eludes you when you chase earthly values. How pitiful we would be at the end of time when we stand before the Lord Jesus today and look into his eyes, which Revelation 1 says are a flame of fire, discerning all things, and attempt to feebly explain why we chose something transient, over Christ. Many good things in life can become idolatrous if we give them priority above Christ. Don't be deceived by earthly values. But second, this man shows us that earthly values will captivate you. They'll enslave you. They'll capture you. They'll entangle you. This man was chained to this life by the riches of the world. He wanted to do something to gain eternal life, and he claims to keep the commandments faithfully. So Jesus answers the man's question brilliantly. The one specific thing Jesus commands him to do, the one thing, the man says, nah, not that thing. Don't miss the irony here. He asks, what do I do? Jesus says, do this. He says, no, not that. At least he had the sense to know that Jesus wasn't gonna give him another option. His things had captured his heart. What Jesus was doing was asking the man to reprioritize his life around Christ, but he couldn't let go of his stuff. These things brought him pleasure. They allowed him to be comfortable. They gave him power and status. And the grip of pleasure, comfort, and power is not easily broken. We experience the same thing here in America, don't we? Comfort, power, affluence, pleasure, and we really struggle to give up those things. This is a hard lesson to learn, even for us believers. Because if the man had given away his things, he would have severed the grip these idols had on him. But he chose the things that moth and rust will destroy rather than the incorruptible crown of glory. We have to learn this lesson too and be vigilant to guard our hearts against idolatry. We are very susceptible to the same thing. When the Lord puts his finger on an idol of our heart, we have to be willing to surrender it and say, Lord, this thing has taken your place. I've broken the first commandment. Forgive me by your grace. I'm afraid that many confessing Christians act just like this rich man. 
Jesus calls them to give up their idol, whatever it may be, whatever they're valuing more than him, and take up their cross and follow him. And so many of us say, no, I'll only follow you, but not there. I'll give up some, but, but not that. I'll listen to you, but, but not that long. Are you captivated by earthly things? Are you willing to ask Jesus to expose your idols so that he can graciously liberate you from their bondage? I hope you are. Second, earthly values are difficult to change. It was so difficult for the rich man to alter his lifestyle that he didn't. That's pretty obvious to see. But the disciples' response in verses 23 through 27 also show their astonishment. Their thoughts were perplexed. They couldn't imagine what Jesus was going to say next. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. In our earthly system, those with money receive many benefits. They receive power, priority, prestige, comfort, adoration, the list could go on. Someone with earthly values will consider riches to be something to be sought after. But you know this, right? God isn't impressed by our riches. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, as the Psalms say. Salvation is not a payoff to a heavenly banker. Earthly advantages must be surrendered to gain eternal rewards. But how difficult is it for us to give up those things that have captured our hearts? Even the disciples were stunned at what transpired in front of them. Verse 24 says that they were astonished. Verse 26 says that they were greatly astonished. The Greek words there are intensifying, that their astonishment continued to grow. Why? Because Jewish culture believed that riches were a sign of God's blessing. And so it appears that the disciples seemed to think that this man was close to the kingdom because of his wealth. They had adapted earthly values from their culture without realizing it. And when Jesus exposed that to them, they were flummoxed. They were, they were baffled. There's a warning for us here. We can easily adopt values from our culture that sound right, but have no basis in Scripture. Folks, just, just because we are Christians doesn't mean all of our thinking is Christianly. It is difficult at times to discern. It is difficult to separate the heavenly from the earthly. That's why there are so many exhortations in Scripture to think biblically. Let me just share three of them with you. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If you then were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. 1 Peter 1, 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. And rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Matthew 6, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. These are just a representative sample. Over and over again, Scripture commands us to get our mindset not on the things around us, but to get them on things above. Could you honestly say that Matthew six thirty three is a verse that you are living out right now? that you are truly seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Or have you gotten the order backwards? Are you prioritizing these things and not seeking first the kingdom of God? 
passages like these describe those who orient their lives around Jesus. This is what they do. They set their mind on things above. They're not concerned with the stuff of this life. And so they're able to draw near to God because their mindset is set on things above. Third, heavenly values produce great rewards. This is our final point this morning. Jesus graciously promised the rich man that if he gave up all to the poor, he would have what? Treasure in heaven. First Peter 1 talks about our treasure that's incorruptible and undefiled and unfading and, and reserved in heaven for us. It's kept by the power of God. It's so unbelievable that we can't imagine it. In verses 28 through 31, Jesus spoke of this reward, describing it in four different ways. Let's read these verses and we'll make a couple comments on them. Verse 28, then Peter began to say to him, see, we have left all and followed you. Most likely Peter is looking at the, the rich young man walking off and maybe he's a little shaken. Maybe he's saying, eh, Lord, what about us? We've, we've left all to follow you. I think I know what that means. But Lord, can you give me a little encouragement? Can you affirm this for me? Because the disciples did leave many things to follow Christ. Again, as an aside, did that mean that the disciples recited a vow of poverty? No. Peter had a house. He had a wife. But what the disciples did was they oriented their lives around Jesus. They gave up other pursuits to focus on Christ. Peter says, this is what we've done. This is how Jesus responds. Verse 29. So Jesus answered and said, assuredly, be at rest. I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the life to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Note four things about this reward. First, the reward the cost to gain the reward, that is, requires total allegiance to Christ. As they say in the sports world, no pain, no gain. If you aren't willing to give up all for Christ, you will not experience the joy of eternal reward. There's no such thing as a half-hearted follower of Jesus. James talks about the double-minded man. And whenever I think of double-minded, I always think of animals trying to cross the road. You know, like a squirrel runs out in front of you, then it freezes, twitches, kind of moves one way, then goes back the other, and you're kind of like, if you don't make up your mind, you're going to become part of my tire tread. Hurry up. That's kind of the way half-hearted followers are. Not sure which way to go, trying to hedge their bets. There, there's no hedging your bets with the Lord Jesus. You're either in or you're out. Peter noted that they had given up all to follow him, and they had valued Jesus and given him their total allegiance why did they do that? Why would they give Jesus everything? Why would they give him total allegiance? Well, first of all, because he's worth it. And second, because that's precisely what Jesus asks for. Total allegiance and complete surrender. Have you completely surrendered to Jesus? Or has the last 18 months with all the baggage and the, and the upheavals shifted your focus away from Christ? Jesus listed off many things that could divert our attentions 
away from himself. Houses, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, lands, estates. Again, is he saying that we abandon our responsibilities intentionally? No, he is saying that we don't allow earthly values to prevent us from wholly following Christ. When we choose to serve Christ for the gospel's sake, for my sake, some of those other things may go away. We may be rejected. We may lose status. We may be fired. There are persecuted believers all around the world today that are experiencing this very thing. There are, there, there are dozens and hundreds of believers in, in places in Africa that are having their homes burned, their businesses burned simply because they're Christian. There are people in China and in Asia and in North Korea that are under constant surveillance and in, basically in prison camps for the single thing of becoming a Christian. In Afghanistan, the Taliban is apparently going door to door right now, searching and trying to find foreigners and Christians to kill them. When you name Christ, you may lose things for the sake of the gospel. But what Jesus says is that this reward is a hundredfold in its return. You don't give up things and then live life without nothing. Jesus says that it's a hundredfold return. The maximum investment, the maximum return our investment we will be repaid far more graciously than we ever deserve. And this reward, amazingly, will be paid out in both this life and in the next life. We usually think that the reward for following Christ will only come in heaven, but that's not what he says. He repeats the same list of things we give up control over and says we get all these things back. How is that possible? Well, he gives us himself. There's a fellowship in Christ's sufferings with the Lord Jesus himself. But secondly, we also gain back a new spiritual family. For those that have abandoned fathers, mothers, children, brother, sister, like our pastor has, he gained a new spiritual family. When Pastor Hines was booted out of his family's home, his father told him, don't come back, you're a Christian. Pastor had a new family. That's what Jesus is promising. But in addition to these things, did you catch what else Jesus slipped into the list of rewards? With persecutions. We don't have time to explore this more in detail, but I, I want to encourage you, even challenge you, to think about persecution for Christ's sake in a new light. Jesus lists persecutions for his name and for the gospel's sake as a reward. Persecution for Christ's sake is not part of the cost of leaving, but a share of the reward for following. That's so foreign to us, isn't it? But that's precisely why Paul writes in Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you on the behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. That little word granted to you is the word for grace. God has graced us with the privilege of suffering for him. Do we consider it an honor to be persecuted for Christ. These persecutions will make our reward in heaven so much sweeter. And just how gracious is our God to tell us that, that the things that we do here in this world that's passing away, these things will count for eternity. How gracious is that? The final thing about this reward, it is given equally. Verse 31 supplies us with immense hope the reward is given to all regardless of their earthly status. The first will be last, the last will be first. Anyone who prioritizes Jesus and makes him the center of life, Jesus will reward. So it doesn't matter if you don't have speaking gifts. It doesn't matter if you're not wealthy. It doesn't matter what nationality you are. If you follow Christ, he will reward it. There's great encouragement in that. 
Tim Cassie, who founded Frontline Missions International, tells the story in his book, Dispatches from the Front, about a Russian believer named Alexei. And Alexei's testimony, I believe, perfectly illustrates our text today. Alexei was a tank officer in World War II, survived the war, won a number of medals for bravery, decided to go into the Soviet Navy. He was an intelligence officer after the war for his career. In 1968, he heard a radio broadcast of the gospel, and he accepted Christ. For the next seven years, he was the only Christian that he knew. Seven years, he was the only Christian he knew. And after seven years, he connected with some other believers. He found them, and he was baptized. And that's when things got really hard. Cassie writes, after he was baptized, quote, this public testimony of his faith was a great dividing line in his life. His wife divorced him. His children would have nothing to do with him. For several years, he was homeless, living in a cold, dank basement without electricity or running water. He eventually found a job in a factory and a place to stay, but his penchant for passing out smuggled tracts and sharing his faith kept him in trouble with the KGB, the Secret Service, during the years of persecution. For over 25 years now, and this is several years ago that he was writing, during persecution and during freedom, Alexei has never missed church a single time. In fact, when he worked at the factory and was scheduled to work on Sunday, he would pay a co-worker a full day's wage to take his place so he could go to church. He continues, we talked until dusk and he took out a little box of mementos. Among them were yellowing photographs of a handsome young officer in his crisp uniform decorated with many medals. He took one of them out of the box. Stamped in red on a dull silver on dull silver were the Russian words for bravery in battle. He gave it to me, but I said, I cannot take this. It's a treasure, one at great cost. He smiled and said, I'm going home soon and will have no need of it there. That's the mindset of a man who has answered Jesus' call to orient his entire life around Christ. So I ask you, is Christ essential to you? Let's bow for prayer. And as you consider that, we've had several, several things we've discussed this morning. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you, you don't possess the hope of eternal life. That can be today. Jesus says to give up what you are trusting in and come to him. And he graciously receives. He does not turn away any who come. For those of us who are believers, there's a lot of challenge here, isn't there? Affluence has such a grip on us. This life has such a grip on us. Let's pray and ask God to help us have heavenly values. Father, we conclude our time today so thankful for the compassion and the care of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for the grace that he gives, the kind invitation to let go of the things that are burdening us and to come to him alone. If there is someone here that's never trusted Christ as Savior, we ask that you would move in them to see one of us afterward, that we can talk further and show them the hope of the blessed gospel of our Savior. And for each of us who have named the name of Christ, who are following you, may we sharpen and clarify our convictions so that we may pursue you and keep Christ in the center of our lives. In Jesus' name.
Amen.